0: Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I am your host, Joel Cherney. My guest today is Aaron Keene, author of Runaway, Notes on the Myths That Made Me, published in 2022 by Belt Publishing. Aaron is editor-in-chief of Salon.com and also the editor of the Louisville Anthology, also published by Belt. In her new book, Erin reviews her investigation into her mother's life as someone who spent much of her early time running away, often with new identities. Erin also talks about her own early life and her extended family. Throughout, she talks about movies and other media that affected her. I hope you enjoy my interview with Erin Keene. Hey, Erin.
1: Hi, how are you, Joel?
0: I'm fine. I'm talking with Aaron Keen, who is author of the book "Runaway: Notes on the Myths That Made Me." Of course, Aaron also has a day job. She's the editor in chief at Salon.com, um, but she's and she's done a lot of other writing and 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 work. So, I'm hoping that uh, even though this is being published as new books and film officially, but it'll appear on a lot of different new books uh, channels. Uh, that everyone will find the book interesting, even though it's not really a typical film book. But we'll we'll talk about that as we go. So uh, first thing, uh, Aaron, one of the things we talked about briefly before I started recording is that we're both in Kentucky. Um, From reading the book, I know you spent a large part of your life in Kentucky. Um, uh, Didn't you spend... Where did you first live? Because I know you said a small-town in Kentucky that you were at, and now you're in Louisville.
1: Right, so my family moved around a lot when I was younger. In the book, um, you'll learn that, or readers will learn, that I was born in New Jersey. And um, uh, when my parents separated, uh, my mother moved us to Arizona, where her parents had retired to, um, from DC. So, um, And then from there, actually, we moved to Germany for a little while. And um, when we moved back to the States, my grandparents had moved again. And um, well, they had all of our stuff, really, all of the things that we had left behind in storage when we moved to Germany for a couple of years. And um, my grandmother grew up in Western Kentucky. So um, they had decided to move again. Um, They were a military family and I think you know being on the move just sort of suited them a little bit so they moved to kentucky right before we moved back so instead of moving back to arizona which is what i you know i think we assumed was going to happen we moved to kentucky instead to western kentucky so i um ended up you know going to school and sort of finishing growing up in um outside of paducah mm-hmm. in the western part of the state and i came to louisville for college and um have uh, managed to forge a career here as a writer and an editor and, um, yeah, and have just ended up staying.
0: Yes, uh, I'm from actually my hometown is Cleveland, which, of course, is one of the reasons why I f- I follow Belt Publishing so, so closely. They're the people who published your book and they are a cleveland small publisher and i try to read or at least look at everything they do they are my personal heroes as far as Publishers and the fact that they have a Cleveland connection have written a lot of books, not only about Cleveland, but you actually edited a collection for them called the Louisville Anthology. They've done a number of anthologies about cities in, mostly in the Midwest. The Belt part is Rust Belt, obviously, as far as the name of the company. So I'm glad that uh, you've already worked with them, but that I hope your experience and it sounds like it, your experience with Belt has been great.
1: Yeah, they're my heroes as well, actually. Um, I had a wonderful experience editing the Louisville anthology. Um, It came out during the, you know, we started the project before the pandemic and then um, it came out in the, you know, fall, winter of 2020 and then into early 2021. So all of the, you know, big ideas I had about local events celebrating the anthology, of course, you know, went by the wayside and we were doing everything virtually at that time. Um, At the same time, I was um, in January of 2021. I remember, so I I was volunteering at the um, at Louisville's um, health department's uh, vaccine center once the vaccines became available. If you um, weren't in the sort of, you know, the first responder, the teachers, the over 65, like all of the sort of higher risk and essential personnel um, categories you could also they needed a lot of volunteers to run this center to get all of the first responders get all of the public school and private school uh, teachers and staff vaccinated Um, and so i so i volunteered there and i remember like rushing to finish a shift and then slide back into my um my home office desk to do like a zoom Reading an event um, in honor of the anthology. So that was not that was a really strange and interesting time to think back on. Uh, but I had a wonderful experience with Belt. And so I had all, all during that time I had also been working on this book. And um, Ann Trubeck, the publisher, was aware of the book. And um, I was actually needed to finish writing a book proposal. So I took her book proposal course, which is online. Um, And throughout the, you know, she really helps me get the proposal in order and um, over the course of events, I really, as I was, you know, sort of considering where I might want to publish this book, I thought, well, I want the best editors possible for it. I want people who get the book and get what I'm trying to do. Um, and are going to be excited about that, and I uh, ended up having a really great conversation with Anne about the project, and um, I was just thrilled when she said she wanted to publish it, and I thought this is, because every book that I've read by uh, um, Belt authors has blown me away with its, um, its brilliance, really, so they have such a knockout catalog, and they're such an amazing editorial team and, okay, this is the end of my plug for my publisher, but...
0: <laughs> well, that's okay. A, you I'm can you can do your girl. plug and I'll do the same plug, because like I said before, even though I didn't write for them, I, I even know their address, Fleet Avenue. I know exactly where Fleet Avenue is in the southeast part of Cleveland, so... As I say, it's just, it brings me back to home, is what it comes down to, I think. And the fact that they write about Cleveland a lot helps too. But it's a, you know, it's the closest I get to saying it's a hometown publisher. So I've got to make, it's one of the reasons, like I say, I care for all the work they do so much. And I think people should give their work. a study, especially anybody who's interested in learning more about the Rust Belt and also those areas that uh, they write about, they go as far, you know, they go to, they've written things about Chicago and as far that far back uh, west, but uh,
1: it's definitely I mean, uh, yeah, Minneapolis, St. Louis. I mm-hmm. mean, it's definitely the 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 purview of the press has really grown beyond, you know, the the traditional Rust Belt um, right. definitions, which I think is really. Uh, is really cool but that there's still room underneath that to um, look at sort of under-examined voices and um, some of the some of the places that don't always get the um, the regional spotlight
0: well i think as for publishing purposes it's one of the great things about the 21st century i know we sometimes complain but the fact that uh, small publishers can thrive and people can do book tours Remotely, even during a pandemic, and even your research, and we will t- obviously going to talk about that because much of your book is the detective story that you did. Um, you're able to do at least some of it remotely, so uh, to a large extent that's part of the whole positive of finding ways to do things in the 21st century.
1: Absolutely, yeah.
0: So anyway, yeah, and I, to finish my... For that long story, there is. I live in Ashland, Kentucky, which is probably almost the exact farthest distance from Paducah. I mean, you you look at a map, and Paducah's way down to the southwest of Kentucky, and I'm way up here in the northeast of Kentucky. But uh, so anyway, uh, so uh, let's talk about your background a little bit. Obviously, as I say, we talked about your that you've done some writing, and and you clearly. Uh, um, do you have what what led you into writing in the first place? I guess that's I like talking background cuz so many of our listeners are authors or aspiring authors and and writers and I think they like hearing stories of how people got started.
1: Oh gosh. I mean, I so I was an early reader um because my, you know, my my parents always had a lot of books around and I and they were big readers. So I think that that was just a, a natural thing in my family to pick up on pretty early. And also I come from a long line of storytellers. So um, I, I'm not sure when I actually started writing, but I was I was young, I was young. I would try to like mirror comic strips that I read, like do Peanuts style stories in little panels. Um, I'm a terrible artist, so (laughs) there was no future in comics for me. But, um, you know, eventually I started to kind of stretch out and write a little more and a little more. Um, But I can't really remember a time when I when I wasn't interested in that. And so I started doing more of it in, um, you know, I really liked school and I wanted to do well in school. And uh, it was the kind of thing that I got really positive feedback from. Um, from te- from different teachers on with my writing skills. So I kind of leaned into that. And um, when, I suppose when I got learned how to become more serious about writing was, um, this is a Kentucky story as well. The Governor School for the Arts is this fantastic program in Kentucky that offers a, um, it's a competitive thing in the summer. You have to audition to get in, but they, um, they put you on a college campus for several weeks. And you're immersed in your creative discipline. And for um, for a kid like me, who came from a pretty small school where we didn't really have like, I mean, our band was probably you know like the marching band was probably the most robust um, arts program that we had. Um, There's certainly what you know. I think creative writing was maybe one half of a semester of one elective course you could take. I had never met a professional writer before and so this was the summer before my senior year in high school and um that program absolutely changed my life they treated us not like you know high school students taking a class but like oh you're writers this is how you forge a writing discipline this is how you um this is how you read like a writer Right. Um, This is how you uh, so you're just used to writing kind of whatever you want. Let me introduce you to a lot of different forms, to a lot of different types of writing. And you're going to try those and you're not always going to succeed at them. But the you know, the attempt and the and the gradual work is how you master. And that, you know, Governor School for the Arts, it did. It changed my life. So I would say that that was the really laid the foundation for me as a writer. i you know i did some creative writing in college but also journalism and
0: where'd um, you go to college
1: i went to bellarmine here in louisville it's a you know a small private uh liberal arts school with a catholic affiliation it's not run by the archdiocese Mm -hmm. or anything but you know in, in the catholic tradition and um but also did you know studied studied journalism as well and um but i I ended up back in um at spalding university which is also here in louisville um to get my mfa and i actually got my mfa in poetry so that was my poetry was my first love and um one that i hope to come back to someday but i have not i have to confess i have not really been able to think in poems for a while it's a different muscle and so having lived in um in essay for this long, I um, I probably need to put myself back in a workshop myself to get back in the poetry mindset.
0: You've actually published a couple of collections of poetry, right?
1: I have, yeah. So that's like you know what I thought after my MFA was okay. You get your book of poems. You go out on the job market. You get a job teaching creative writing. Um, and this is, you know, this is what my professors had done. This is the, the path that I was sort of being groomed for and kind of leading myself toward. And then my first collection of poems came out from a small press called Word Farm. It's called the Gravity Soundtrack. And it came out right in 2007. So like right when, um, right before the big crash of 2008 and the great recession. And so all of the jobs that I was applying for, all of the academic jobs, like searches were being canceled one by one, you know, suddenly um, there just weren't as many opportunities anymore. You know, universities were really having to, um, to cut back on hiring. And um, so I actually ended up going into journalism full time, um, which was something that I had thought I would not do because it seemed really stressful. (laughs) And I thought maybe I want a different, quieter kind of life, but I also really wanted to write full-time and um, an opportunity presented itself to uh, join the the staff of the Courier Journal, the daily newspaper here in Louisville. Um, And so I took that path instead. So I have, uh, you know, I work in in media full-time and then I write my own work on the side. I guess you could, I mean, it's it still it takes a very primary role in my life, but like that's that's the writing life that I built for myself instead of building it around full-time university teaching work with writing complementing that as well. Um, I also still teach on the side because I like to stay busy, um, and right now I'm actually on faculty at Spalding's low-residency MFA program, teaching creative nonfiction, professional writing, and a little bit of poetry as well. So that is the yeah that's that's sort of the writing life that i've built for myself from from the courier i went to i got laid off because that's what happens in media especially
0: with newspapers right
1: absolutely so then i went to um wfpl here in louisville which is louisville's npr affiliate station um and learned radio which was not something that i had been you know formally trained in and um, from there, uh, I was uh, freelancing at Salon and a little bit on the side writing about pop culture. And um, when a position opened up on the culture desk as a staff writer, um, I I moved over to remote work. So I've actually been working remotely since 2014. Um, this month, actually, so this is my right around now is like my eighth year, eight year anniversary of working from home.
0: Yeah, I. And so wor- I yeah, so yeah, I understand the remote work before it was a thing because I've done the same thing. So I yes. worked for four years full time for a university as a librarian, all remote, oh, wow. never met wow. my coworkers in person ever.
1: Yeah, I go up to New York a lot. So I ended up kind of working my way up the masthead from writer to desk editor to managing editor to executive editor, and now I'm editor-in-chief. So I do go up to New York um, where some of our staff is still located, uh, but we have a pretty remote workplace at this point. Um, It just makes sense in in a lot of ways in the 21st century, and especially after, you know, when a lot of places had to pivot to remote work during the pandemic, um, we certainly had some of that that we had to figure out like, how do we shoot our, um, you know, our interview series, which is all on video, which we were used to doing in studio. How do we do that remotely? But for the most part, we were already pretty well set up to work on a, on a sort of nationally dispersed team. So I think that we were a little, um, we were able to just kind of keep, keep things rolling pretty much, you know, as, uh, as business as usual as it could possibly have been during one of the most stressful years of
0: recent history it's always great when i interview somebody who's used to working remote because i know that means i'm not going to have to discuss technical issues with them they're going to know exactly what they need to do i exactly. mean no matter what software i use i mean i've done started with uh, um microsoft's uh, I know you see I've already lost it it's been so long since I've used it and then now I switched over to zoom when the pandemic started and now of course I've done a few on teams as well so you just learn how to, to to roll with the punches depending on on what happens where you are and who you're working with
1: yeah I think that's been really helpful for everybody especially for you know now that um we were talking about this right before we started recording but that um you know i'm out doing in-person book events but i'm also uh, i also scheduled a, a good handful of virtual ones as well which is wonderful that everyone is sort of used to doing that too because you can't go everywhere and when you know when you're when your friends and your writing colleagues and such say like oh i wish i could come see this reading i can say well if you're missing this one like you can catch me at yeah. home online you know like here are the here are the virtual events that we have set up. So I, I do think it's amazing how, especially like indie bookstores and um, literary centers and universities, we're all able to really pivot and still provide um, this literary programming that is, you know, it's one thing that just feeds you creatively and spiritually as well. So I'm, I'm just in awe of everybody who was able to do that pivot to online and make it work so nicely for everyone.
0: And it's also great now that the now that the pandemic has receded, although unlike I don't believe it's over. But (laughs) anyway, uh, but it means, though, that you can you've put together, you know, publishers are now able to put together a good collection of both types. So that like in your case, when I was looking through the lists of where you were going to be all over the place, What was great was that you did you're doing virtual as you pointed out, and that helps people who can't be there. But you're not forgetting the live ones. In fact, you're going to be up in Cleveland in a a short time uh, doing Max Books, which is they're on Coventry. I remember. I know you know that's an area I was very familiar with. So it's great that uh, you're able to do both now, which is I think the best of all worlds. Agreed. Because in a lot of cases, a, a, a right, at, especially here, I'm living in Ashland, Kentucky. There's not exactly we're not a hotbed of uh, appearances, so we were lucky to get Weird Al at the local uh, uh, oh, wow. se- center a few months ago. But anyway, so it comes down to that. Uh, it's great that these other methods are out there, which is always helpful. Um, now that we've uh, spent way too way a huge amount of time talking about. Uh, Old home, old, old home weeks. By the way, the program that I used to use was Skype from Microsoft. I don't want people to think my mind had completely gone bad when I said I couldn't remember. <laughs> no,
1: I remember Skype. Everyone yeah, remembers was, Skype. Skype right. was before Zoom. Yeah. Right.
0: <laughs> Skype then Zoom and like I say now Teams for some people. Although I I still like Zoom the best, but that's neither here nor there. So anyway, this book it it get it's being described as a memoir, which I think is a it's a decent description, but as you read it there are times where you're wondering whose memoir is this (laughs) there are so many different people that you talk about and their background and not just how they affected you but their actual background so from your grandparents and the colonel and 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 his wife and your mother and your father your actual your your mother and father and uh, other people in your life your siblings it's just so many different people's stories. Where did you start with putting this as a, as a uh, where did you start and how did it change over time? Or has it always been the idea that you knew this was going to be a, uh, as I said before, a mystery story in some ways, were part of its investigation and the, the the part of the book title where it says myths that made me. And, and we can talk about that too because that's that's an important part of it
1: yeah well so I you know I grew up with um, with some certain realities that I thought I knew which is my mother ran away from home when she was 13 she married my father when she was 15 he was 36 uh, she was living in New York where and he was as well they were they met at uh, Googie's bar which used to be a bar in the village and um, got married when she was 15 um, had my brother when she was 17 me when she was 19. And when I was five years old, they split up, and um, during that they they separated, but did not get divorced. And during that year that they were separated, my father died. Um, so he became a sort of, you know, kind of unknowable figure, and yet one that sort of loomed large in my in the background of my life, and definitely in my in my heart and in my psyche. You know, he was the the parent who um could kind of become in absentia anything that i wanted him to be because he wasn't there you know as i as i I sort of joke about this but my mother just had to be my mother right like Mm -hmm. she was there for everything for every birthday for every you know milestone and you know the, the the good days and the bad and all of the sort of mundane stuff that goes with child rearing so, and he became a sort of, you know, I, th- I think about him in the same way, I, I thought about him con- conceptually in the same way that one might a celebrity, someone that you feel you know very well and intimately and have a deep connection with, but someone who's also ultimately not possible for you to really know. Um, and so I was, this was, um, pre Me Too, if Me Too, the the reckoning as they call it, um, the big wave of media stories that started in around just about five years ago mm-hmm. with the Harvey Weinstein exposés. Um, a couple of years before that, actually, maybe about a year and a half before that, I started to think differently about my parents' relationship um, in a way that I never had before. I never really questioned um, like was it good was it right that a man uh that that my mother who was 15 at the time had married somebody her father's age um in a way that and no and as far as i could tell nobody in my family ever really talked about the fact that my father was a very flawed person he was a heroin addict for many years when he met my mother he was on methadone So he was not, um, he was, you know, he was not using heroin, but he still drank an awful lot as well. And um, was sort of, you know, didn't always have the most stable employment history and wasn't always, you know, perhaps the most stable person. But like, so those were faults that I was aware of. But to my recollection and really to my perception, nobody ever really talked about it not being like being sort of shocking or kind of, not okay that he had married someone who was still basically a kid right um and i'm so i never really thought of it that way either i think we're, we're we sort of look at our families um as they're presented to us as we're growing up until at some point you kind of break away and you start to see your family maybe through slightly more like through outside eyes so for me it was um writing about so mariel hemingway had uh she put out her autobiography which is a wonderful book and um a sort of early excerpt leaked online one night and um and it was about uh the story of um from her memoir about after manhattan wrapped filming and then she turned 18 um that woody came and visited her and her family um, at the family home. and at some point, the idea was broached that maybe she should go to Paris with him. And um, so of course we're that, talking
0: about Woody Allen and the Woody film Allen yeah
1: <laughs> who of course, played her, you know, 40 something or like forty two year old right. lover when she plays a seventeen year old in this movie, which also is sort of played for like a little bit of laughs, but not really like, gee, do you think that there's maybe some, really strange power imbalance going on here so um and I thought okay well I I I need to write about this for for work for salon and one thing that I needed to really do was actually reckon with the fact that Manhattan was my favorite movie for many many years and it wasn't really until like a couple of years before that that sort of you know old older, like, allegations of abuse um, had sort of resurfaced in the um, in the public consciousness, right? And Woody Allen, in, in around 2014, 2015, was already starting to undergo, um, as a public figure and as an artist, a bit of a reckoning that was kind of pre-Me Too, um, in the same way that at that time, also, the Bill Cosby cases were coming to light and so that was also a little bit of pre me too but all of these things really i think pay also helped they were bellwethers right they were definitely signals Mm -hmm. that a big shift was coming um i thought i couldn't really write about how how i perceived this account without admitting that like that movie, which now in the, you know, in 2015, when I was looking back and it seems sort of shamelessly problematic as we say these days, (laughs) but that I, I never considered that movie problematic. Um, I loved the movie and I, and I had to ask myself why. And I realized, Oh, this is the sort of cleaned up, sanitized, definitely, you know, uh, um, uptown version of my parents sort of more gritty downtown version of that love story and the um the way that the movie concludes with the you know the list of things that make life worth living and one of them is you know isaac played by woody allen realizes you know tracy's face and then he does that we get that shot of him running through the streets to catch her before um to and to tell her you know how he feels that that this idea that this young girl could be could be the force that could redeem the pain of existence for a complicated man was something that just had embedded itself really deep in my psyche as well. And I hadn't even realized that maybe I had attached myself to this idea um, and not interrogated it because on some level that is also what I felt about my parents' relationship too.
0: Yeah, unfortunately, both, both Hemingway women had their, Issues with Hollywood and in being involved in these kind of situations, and it's, I, I, that that is one of those things that over time in watching movies, and this is before Me Too, and even before we go back far enough when it, it goes to, before these whole discussions of of feminism and and an, uh, the ability to control your own story and destiny. Uh, There were always films and situations that I, the only way I could put them is they made me feel icky. That's the only word I could use, but I could never figure out exactly what was it that was. Uh, I often talk about the example of the Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan film, um, um, You've Got Mail. And while it's considered such a great movie and everything, and a great rom-com, it's always bothered me that for the last part of the movie he's basically stalking her he knows what's going on she doesn't and he's stalking her and nobody i've never seen anybody talk about it and yet i you know i felt it was a little bit strange that this it gave him agency and she had none
1: yeah i mean so many formative rom-coms of the especially of the 80s and 90s revolve around this idea of um you know persistence being the on the part of the man being the thing that wins the woman over which if you've ever been sort of person-
0: yeah no means no until it changes to yes that's <laughs>
1: exactly exactly which is a myth of course that we teach both boys and girls right mm-hmm. so um, the or that like someone that you that you just absolutely despise who has values completely different from yours um, can win you over by showing you how wrong you are about yourself right um which is one that i always feel is like okay fine show me this couple in 10 years (laughs) you know after the sort of initial heat has worn off um are they back to contempt for each other again are they back to just like fundamentally plus
0: he puts her out of business he still puts her out of business even though oh
1: it's so yeah the 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 way that that was sort of a heart like, you know, also foretelling a lot of things. Um,
0: and it was a bookstore that she ran, so, a, a kid's bookstore. My God. So painful.
1: Anyway. So painful. Yeah. But, but at the same time, so charmingly filmed and so, um, mm-hmm. you know, and the, and the performance. And written by so a woman. Right. Yes, exactly. Because we're not, you know, I, I think that this is the thing that I, I didn't want to sort of shy away from my own, tastes as they were, because um, even though, yes, I'm a woman, I've always identified as a feminist, I was raised by a feminist. But like, that doesn't mean that I was immune to, um, you know, forces that shape your what you consider to be okay, and not okay, you know, forces shaped by the patriarchy to use a, a big loaded word. Um, and that like have calibrated us from from birth, because we're just immersed in the culture, which is why I think that pop culture, um, is so important for us to take seriously because it's both a reflection of our values often. And then it also takes an active role in shaping values.
0: And of course, much of the book, uh, even though much of the, obviously the, there's so much story here, the, 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 the pop culture and how that that's probably the part that's most your story. Is yeah. the pop culture part as opposed and, and how those things affected your growing up? Because obviously, uh, the book only goes as far as Arizona for you, right? That's pretty much where you end it when you folks are in Arizona. And, and that, be, or almost, maybe you'd moved, I forgot now at the end. Uh, and of course, Arizona becomes Tatooine, which becomes Star Wars, which, given the age, it makes sense because. You know, Star Wars goes through these ups and downs, and I think a lot of it depends on on what's going on in the quote-unquote Star Wars universe. But uh, I have, you know, I grew up—not grew up—I was 21 when Star Wars came out. But um, then, when the prequels came out, a whole—it was long enough afterwards, '99—that a whole new generation, literally a whole new generation of kids, came up on the new Star Wars. And then it happened with the sequels as well, although less so because they weren't as successful. But it, to me, I think it it does work well as a metaphor for generational um, understanding of pop culture.
1: Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, we didn't, you know, I, I think we were just sort of, we were sort of maybe vaguely aware that Return of the Jedi had just been, had when it came out, had been filming sort of near us. But of course, we know we were little kids and never actually saw any of that as it happened um but yeah the you know when the parts of me that are in this book really are the you know engaging with pop culture so there are parts um in here you know from a personal point of view that take place when i'm an adult as well like going to see the pogues in london and um and you know some teenage flashbacks as well but really where i you know the where I sort of center myself in this story is both the, um, the active discovery of uh, finding out more, I get getting closer to the truth about my parents. I guess we can say that, like, what is absolute truth? Hard to say, but I feel like I have gotten closer to some truths about my parents. And so she's kind of showing that active um, process in this book, and then also reflecting back on those moments where um, where I had been engaging with these with the myths that made me which are both you know the the pop culture that in some cases was shaped by um my affinity for it was also shaped by how i identified parts of it with my own family
0: and of course the myths also included your grandparents particularly your grandfather who fought in vietnam Came back, and the, the, the one I remember the most, partly because it's towards the end of the book, and therefore it's the one that remembers that I come back to quickly, is the infamous skull. Yeah. that had It had so many different stories and knowing what was true. And, of course, those are the examples that are throughout the entire book in the myths part where you were told stories or you heard stories, believed them, and then over time as you began to investigate and this is the part about how myths are things that can be interesting when it comes to things like Star Wars the myth of uh, th- that comes out of the storytelling of Star Wars and other films and other things but the myths of our lives that we are told or we believe something and it's only when we do the digging and that's what you did for much of the book that you discover the real truth. And it, even then you start, do I really still know the truth?
1: Well, you know, one through line in this book that I learned was that is how often in my family's history, at least, the, the people who knew better let the men have their version of the story that they told and that they weren't really contradicted or, um, or pushed back upon you know and i think that and in, in so doing it really helped men like my my like the colonel my grandfather who was my mother's father and then my father as well who told a lot of outsized wild stories about himself that turned out to also not be true they wouldn't just tell these in, in a vacuum other people would be around who maybe knew more of the truth or at least knew that that wasn't completely the full story but there was never that like sort of inj- interjection, you know. The skull story that you reference—that skull that was such a an, an image of my childhood. No matter where my grandparents lived, there was this skull wearing the airborne beret on the baby grand piano. Um, in in my version, you know, because the version that the colonel told that that was uh, you know sort of purloined from a graveyard in a small French village when they were stationed overseas. And um, it wasn't until after he died that and then later I went, you know, asked my mother, like, well, so tell me the story again. And she just kept going. And as it turns out, there are whole parts of the skull story. I won't spoil it for the book, but that like grandfather left out of the narrative that have to do with her and her active role in how the skull that I had grown up with had ended up on that piano. And so I always thought that that was and it goes past
0: it and it goes past his death that's where the story
1: exactly so long story short I really wanted the skull after he died and um and I ended up not getting it and then um you know I really had to press my mom on okay tell me again and where did and then where did the skull go from there um you know in my mom was really generous with her stories um, when i was working on this book but i really had to approach her not like my mother um, but more like a a source so i interviewed her like i would any source that i wanted to do some deep reporting on and she was you know i'm lucky that she decided to be pretty patient and roll with it and i think maybe she felt you know sure maybe it's time that these stories do get told Um, but we had so many very long interview sessions really where i would just press her for details and try to nail down timelines in a way that i never had when you're just listening to people in your family tell stories right they tend to stop the story where they want to stop it or kind of curve it off into a different related story um and so i was really i was pretty fortunate that she really let me actually be a little more professional about this and um and try to actually get as close as I could to a full narrative down, um, but yeah, that my grandfather was so um, such a larger than life character. He was a he retired a retired lieutenant colonel in the army, um, a career army man, and he went to Vietnam twice um, beca- as an officer because um, that was a to volunteer instead of wait to be sent was a good way to make yourself a candidate for promotion. And the whole family was, you know, all in on his military career, because that's what that's what was leading to the upward mobility for for my family. So, um, you know, to that end, my mother was uh, the children were expected to be, you know, part of the package. Right. If you can if you can't keep your family in order, then what does that say about you as an officer? Um, As far as this is what this is what I gleaned about military culture of the time from talking to my mother and her brother. Um, and so, you know, my grandfather really idolized John Wayne. And so I write in the book about yeah, you watching...
0: talk about some of the John Ford uh, yeah. Uh, Westerns.
1: Yeah. the you know, the man who loved who shot Liberty Valance is, is one of my favorites of his. But I really started rewatching The Searchers and I watched it several times in the course of writing this book and tried to imagine how that movie maybe had shaped his response to when my mother ran away for the second time because my the first time she ran away he was in vietnam and then the second time he was in north carolina he could have gone looking for her and um as far as i know he didn't so that was a question i guess that i had started to have you know too too long after he passed away to ask him but why did he not you know move heaven and earth to try to get her home because a kid on the road is in danger and so i really
0: had yeah, to you talk about that, that he's just up by 95 so i mean you know yeah, it turns they out you Bragg. were very, they, she was pretty close and uh, of course the she came home partly because well you know he was the catalyst for her to come home the first time when he when he, she finally calls her mother and mother says well you better get home because we're moving yeah.
1: <laughs> and that's military your father, right there you know
0: he's too. coming home your your father's coming home and we're moving
1: yeah. And so, that, you know, when I and it wasn't until um, I will, I really credit Milos Foreman and his film Taking Off, which I had not seen until I started working on this book, um, with helping me maybe become a little more sympathetic to my grandparents also at the time, you know, that when I was writing this book, I was really, I think I was pretty angry with them for what I was perceiving to be their, not apathy exactly, but that their anger with my mother for Being so wild that you know that she was not being a credit to her father and to the family by by running away and taking off, which is just such an amazingly funny and poignant movie, um, and made around shot around the same you know nineteen seventy one, so it's contemporaneous. Was the was really the first movie that I saw, maybe the only film that I saw like this that was that didn't treat it like a you know an after school special or cautionary tale and like. The girl who runs away doesn't die. You know, there's no big tragedy to it. It's a comedy, it's a bit of a farce. And looking at, you know, um, is it Buck Henry as the father who's sort of trying to find his daughter, but is really also just caught up in his own life and his own midlife crisis um, ended up making me a lot more have some empathy for my grandparents who just did not really, I think probably like a lot of folks of their generation did not really understand um, their children and what they wanted. And that there was not really a lot of, um, I think Foreman says this in an, in an interview around the time that there wasn't really a lot of understanding there, a lot of love, but not a lot of understanding. And um, yeah, and so in that way, like it actually seeing, seeing something so similar to my parents' story, but that rendered in a bit of like, an absolute farce brought me around and kind of, I think it, it uh, shaved off some of my anger, kind of smoothed out my rough edge about that. And then I just ended up really just feeling a lot of empathy for everybody involved.
0: And one of the reasons that I, one of the other things that I found so interesting in the book, and it's, it's something where um, I teach uh, college history and A lot of the, one of the classes I teach is a gen ed course, so of course these are students who don't plan on studying history in any way, shape, or form, often are coming in kicking and screaming, but uh, based on their high school experiences with history. But anyway, we talk a lot about primary sources in the class and the importance of primary sources to try to get stories because secondary sources... It's somebody's interpretation, where with a primary source, you can often get a better sense. But one of the things we talk about is the concept of memoirs and journals, the kind of thing where you learn about the person, the famous person or the person that's the important part of the research. But you're learning about it from a you're still you're definitely learning about it from a specific point of view and how primary sources still need to be reviewed and in some cases more so for not just bias but truth and I think that's of course the main focus of the of the book is the idea of runaway and, and notes on the myth that made me is that your mother was a runaway but we also hear the story of other runaways as part of the story but you had to do a lot of digging because did, yeah. the truth and falsity of what was going on, where did you, I mean, did you already have some of that digging knowledge from your work as a journalist, or was it something that you had to learn how to do some of that?
1: No, I really didn't know what to do except to treat it like a reporting project at a certain point. You know, my father my father died when I was, like I said, when I was five, five and a half. Um, he has one sibling. And she's, uh, my aunt is a sister of Charity and she was really, she was very immersed in, um, this is going to sound way more drastic than it is because sisters of Charity are out, you know, doing work in the community, but she was very immersed in convent life during the time during a period of time in my father's life that preceded when he met my mother. And so I, I could I could show, you know, he graduated, he, I knew when he graduated from high school, you know, in the 50s and um, and I knew he was a Marine. So I knew that I had his basic training, graduation class um, photo. And, um, but I didn't really know like how long he was in the Marines or, you know, and, and, I, and what I had was some stories that he had told my mother who had then told us about some, you know, big legendary exploits, right? Um, And then I know where he was in 1972 when he met my mother. And so there's about there was about a 10-year period that I couldn't really account for in my father's life. And I knew that over that 10-year period was also a heroin addiction. But you know, 10 years is a long time in somebody's life. And so I also knew my mother had said, you know, he had been arrested a lot. So when you know that somebody has has been through the the system one way or another. Um, well, there you know there are ways to find records. So I actually, what happened to me was super lucky. I will say, as a reporter, is that I sent off a records request to um, to the the division of the National Archives that holds the Southern District of New York, um, which is only for federal cases, right? And the the likelihood that there was a federal case attached to him was actually pretty low, much more likely it was a lot of local, you know, possession busts, busted buying, that sort of thing, um, but he actually, it, it turned out, I, an archivist emailed me back and said, well, look what we found. Um, archivists are worth a, three times their weight in gold. They are the most dedicated and diligent professionals out there. And they um, they save reporters' lives on a daily basis. <laughs> and so what we found out was that he had um, he had been arrested on a counterfeiting charge with a friend, um, just making fake twenties to pass off, you know, and get change from. Essentially, a pretty low level scheme to uh, a little bit of hustling to fund his habit. And but because it's counterfeiting, that just some things just automatically become federal charges, you know, Um, so that so the whole record is was preserved in uh, in the National Archives. And it was a long record too. he pleaded guilty. Um, He was received a sentence of uh, two years for each charge, but to be served concurrently and. Also, his public defender argued, you know, and he argued quite eloquently um, to the pleaded to the judge that it was his addiction, um, that he needed help. And so the judge remanded him to um, basically said, you don't have to serve out the sentence if you'll go to rehab and rehab at the time. You know, this is the early mid 1960s wasn't as widespread as it is today and definitely wasn't as widespread you know in the public consciousness as it was say after you know the Betty Ford Center was founded um, but there was, and this is comes back to Kentucky. Right, I know, was, I, I know yeah, where you're going. Like the um, <laughs> he, he could take the Lexington Cure, as the jazz musicians called it. He could go to the Narco Farm, um, which was a you know the the first sort of like institute that the federal government founded in the in the 1930s to both rehabilitate drug addicts and to study drug addiction. Um, In
0: Lexington, Kentucky.
1: In Lexington, Kentucky, which I had no idea that he had ever been through there. And through there he was several times because he would get just detoxed and then he would sort of take off. Clearly minimum security. (laughs) Um, And so this went on over and over again. He would abscond. He wasn't checking in with, you know, like his, his, uh, you know, the probation officers couldn't find him. Officers of the court couldn't find him. He'd be hauled back in in front of a judge he would plead his case again, he would get sent back to Lexington, this rinse repeat over and over, over the course of several years until I, I think maybe maybe the fourth judge had to say like, this isn't working, um, this isn't working at all. And so he ended up finally after, and this is a course of like six to eight years, period of six to eight years, finally serving um, at least some of that time in Danbury in federal prison there. Um, where I have some, a letter that he wrote his sister that my aunt uh, found and gave me and um, when he was about ready to get out. So it was a lot of back and forth and it was a lot of, um, it was a revelation to me to read my father's voice in the court transcripts because I have a lot of still photographs. We're a big photography family, but I don't have any um, home movies of him or recordings of him so um and we have letters but you know in this case it was him speaking off the cuff but um addressing the court and trying to explain himself and i found that really really fascinating and that was something that my mother didn't know about either he just never told her and um it was a pretty big revelation to her as well
0: What's great is that you were actually able to find transcripts. I mean, it's hard to find transcripts of court cases, especially small ones. I mean, the average court case doesn't really—at least back then—they didn't necessarily publish everything. Uh, and the right, fact that yeah. you had you had transcripts of actual cases and and able and you knew you could reasonably trust it, that it was exactly. trustworthy, and unlike a story that you might have heard from your mother or your father, this was a story that you knew had to have some truth to it because it it was an official record
1: yes the official i mean of course as as we all know official records sometimes also need to be questioned but this one was pretty cut and dry it's he admitted that he did this and it was
0: right they had no reason to fake anything
1: right right and so there's a lot of there's like actual stamps on some of the cover sheets that were scanned in for me of you know when he was picked up again and um the sort of handwritten notes of where he was found and um yeah that was that just ended up being the the most interesting um details that i found but then another and i did go looking i went into new york city archives and looked and looked for um you know for state cases instead Hmm. um and nothing felony showed up you know so in that regard probably any other arrests that he had had and he had been arrested before this according to his um public defender who had pointed out you know yes he has an arrest record but they're all minor offenses you know he's a fine looking young man from a you know a nice family or however they worded it which was very you can tell that you know the defend the defender is trying to get him some leniency on the sentencing but um everything else i guess was probably pretty pretty small potatoes there were no like felony indictments um as far from that period that i could find just scrolling through the microfilm Um, in the New York City archives myself.
0: And, of course, you went through the same kind of detective work with your mother because she ran away twice, had a different name each time, um, and had her own issues both with, as far as you know from what you were told, she had her own issues that would have possibly created a record both for herself or for people she ran into, because runaway. We haven't really talked about runaway, the concept of runaways that much, except in general. And yet, the whole book talks about is about runaways. Whether it be your mother, the people she dealt with, your father. I mean, even you could say the colonel ran away to Vietnam. I mean, there are, there's the concept of running away, and whether what went on while the person wasn't around, and how you do, you can try to find that out
1: yeah so before i even got to the the point where i was looking for official records my mother i um i did a lot of research into uh runaway culture at the time you know because as as somebody who was coming at this um from having been you know come of age in the 80s and 90s you um it was a very much a different time for uh and now of course with amber alerts too it is the children and teens still go missing uh kids still run away from home but it's a much different environment that they've run away into and a much different process for trying to find them and bring them home um and one thing that i learned is that my my mother is the only adult teen you know grown-up teen runaway that i had ever met but there were so many kids like her um The Runaway Youth Act was uh, introduced in 1971 and went into effect in 1974. And in 1974, the national estimate of runaways in the US was somewhere around a million. So this is a real youth culture wave of kids taking off from home. And a lot of times going to these, um, you know, centers of counterculture because they've heard about it, they've read about it, they've seen it on TV and it's not happening in whatever small town they're living in. So they wanna go seek it out, right? Um, And for my mother, that was uh, almost accidentally ended up in Aspen first and found, wow, this is really cool. And there are all these kids just like me here. And from Aspen hitchhiked to Boston and then from Boston hitchhiked to New York. Um, and then ended up going home from New York and then the second time when she left home the second time and home was moved.
0: Kansas at the time right Kansas City I, or the Kansas area
1: in the yeah the Kansas area and um, after she uh, and then when they moved to North Carolina the you know she really only lasted a few months less than a year she just hopped a bus and went straight up to New York City and said this is where I'm gonna be um but yeah and nearly half the states at that time uh, the police, could take a suspected runaway kid into custody in Massachusetts, Boston, which was where my mother was arrested um, once, was a uh, state that policed status offenses. Those were actions that were criminalized based on the status of the offender. So say, if you were suspected of being under 18 or under 17 and your parent you couldn't prove that your parents had seen you in say 48 hours, then you could be picked up for uh, truancy for being a runaway that sort of thing. Um, And according to uh, a congressional hearing testimony in 1972, 55% of girl runaways in New York City at that time were aged like 11 to 14. So we're also talking about a lot of younger kids like my mother, um, not necessarily only 16 and 17 year olds too. And there's, you know, anybody who knows teenagers, knows and adolescents knows there's a big difference between a 13 year old and a 17 year old also. Um, so that was kind of, that was the backdrop against which my mother ran away. There were a lot of kids out there on the road you could, um, and I think this is where her military upbringing really helped her because she had already learned how to make really immediate, fast, tight friendships that didn't, that didn't, didn't have to stick. Right. Because everybody moved every 12 to, you know, six to 18 months anyway on army bases, so army kids were used to making friends really fast and then being able to move on pretty fast as well. And I think my mother used those skills that she had on the road, meeting up with other kids, finding someone that she felt was trustworthy enough to hitchhike with, you know, so she wouldn't do it alone. There are all these rules that she sort of learned to follow about safety and hitchhiking because there were a lot of kids hitchhiking at the time, way more than you see these days. It was much more common, but that didn't mean that it was always safe just because it was common. Um, So yeah, so my mother told me that she, she had said once or twice when I was growing up, well, you know, I was arrested in Boston once and I was very fascinated by this. And I was like, well, what happened? Like, how did, you know, I had seen you know, like night court, right? <laughs> you know, how does this how does this happen? And she was oh, she would always just sort of brush it off and not really tell the full story. Um, so, in well, interviewing her for this book, I got the full story of how she was arrested in Boston, and it was for um, you know, essentially for being sus- a suspected runaway. And um, she uh, ran away. Then again, from the juvenile facility that she was remanded to, she just slipped away. Um, And I did not expect to be able to find any paperwork on this. But as a journalist, you know, and probably a historian as well, that you you have to even if you think this is there's no way that I'm going to be able to find documents on this. You still put in the requests. And um, I spoke to some folks in um, Massachusetts State Archives who pointed me in the right direction and actually was able to get a, um, you know, there's three pieces of paper that were scanned. They had to be sourced at a clerk's office. Um, my friend, Emily, who lives in Boston, did me the favor of going and actually picking these up for me um, because they, they wouldn't be, you know, scanned and mailed to me um, the way that the National Archives would do so. Um, and, you know, three pieces of paper that showed, like, this is when she was arrested. This is the judge that she went in front of. Um, here's the, the, not just the fake name of hers, but the fake names she gave as her parents' names. She said she was in her twenties and the fake names that she gave as her parents' names made me laugh so hard because they were close, just close enough Mm -hmm. to my grandparents' names that I immediately recognized them as being, oh, those are, that's grandmother and grandfather's fake names. She didn't make them up wholesale. She just made them different enough that they wouldn't be able to find them.
0: Yeah, I think the difference is a journalist uh, keeps looking for weeks most of the time and a historian takes years to keep looking and keeps looking.
1: <laughs> exactly, <laughs> yeah.
0: And and never, I mean, you, you give up because you have to get the story done, but not you know, historians tend not to give up. They're very patient people as far as that kind of thing is concerned. So um, obviously... We've been through bits and pieces of the book, and we've been talking for an hour. So, I hope that's giving people the idea that how much information and and the stories that are involved and following along because the way you tell them, you for, in many cases the reader thinks, okay, this is what happened, and then suddenly we discover, well, that's not really necessarily what happened. And it's just the way that you're able to 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 turn the table, so to speak, on the reader with some of these is is I think one of the great parts about the book.
1: Oh, thank you, thank you. Yeah, it's you know sometimes it's um, it, r- dramatizing the stories that I collected from my mother and then from some other sort of supporting um, interviews and a lot of research also to kind of recreate fill in some of the details that she was a little hazy on about her surroundings. Um, You know, that part was really the the sort of reimagining of my mother's life on the road was one kind of narrative writing, Um, but how to dramatize research is, I find really tricky to do because I always think like, well, that's the stuff that you're not supposed to see. That's like the behind the scenes stuff. Let's get to the story, but um, but it did seem important to the book um, for and this is why it's also a collection of essays, not necessarily a, narr- you know, one narrative through line, is that it, in the, in a large part, the book is not just about my mother's adventures and what she survived. It's also about how I came to think differently about family, about truth, about, the um about the pop culture that i that i ingested about my tastes as a as a cultural critic as well and so being able to show my thinking was really important to me for this project as well
0: and not to completely go off another tangent because you know like i say um but did you learn i mean how much has this affected your personal attitudes towards runaways i mean um obviously a lot of this you probably knew over the years but having done the research and actually found out this has it a changed? not changed i don't want to ever think that you didn't have a a, an, a view towards runaways that was serious but has it changed it to the extent where it's even more important to you to think about runaways
1: well i mean yes and yes and, and no i suppose i'll say that because the um I, you know, I was raised sort of or I sort of grew up with the understanding that um, that most likely underage runaways, kids living on the street were um, from were at risk kids already. Right. They came from dangerous homes, that it was more dangerous to stay home than it would have been to take off on their own, perhaps, or that they had been so much, mat- you know, materially neglected that they uh, were kind of forced to take their own independence in order to survive. And so I already had, a, you know, a, I think a huge well of sympathy for kids who, um, whose home lives are that unsafe and that unstable. What I had to reconcile that with is learning about the, you know, pre 1974 runaway wave, in which, you know, because none of that I felt described to my mother's family. My grandparents um, had a wonderful love story that, you know, that only ended in in their deaths. They were, you know, they stayed married the whole time. The the colonel and his lady is how I refer to them as grandmother and grandfather. Um, they, you know, they had aspirations for their children, and just because their children are human beings, they also had their own ideas about their lives, right? But the, it wasn't a neglectful household. It wasn't a, um, a, an abusive household. There wasn't, you know, addiction or any any of those kinds of issues that um, that would make, have made my mother, a quote unquote, like at risk youth. And so that was part of the impetus of me really digging into. Well, how did you end up in that bar in New York to meet daddy in the first place? That, was the, that became the big question to me that I needed to answer for myself because nothing that I thought that I knew about kids who run away from home lined up with what I thought I knew about my family.
0: Well, as I say, um, the story all the stories are, are just so well told, and I think interesting. And I hope that uh, the book is doing well. And thank you. It's just a, such a great story, and anybody that has a chance to to attend one of your or either your live or virtual events, hopefully they will make sure and I know the information's available on on Belt's website, and also I know you've been advertising that on your own in Twitter on Twitter and other places. So. As I say, I think it's the story is just so interesting and and not just the information, but the way it's told and the way it was put together. So I really want to take the time to thank you for for finding time to talk with me about it. And I hope uh, it continues to be a fulfilling uh, process of of now talking about it in the real world.
1: Well, thank you, Joel. Thank you so much for this wonderful conversation.
0: Thanks. My great thanks to Erin Keene for her time. Her book is a great example of how we need to examine our personal histories for myths and realities. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more New Books in Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network.